So ownership, by definition, is exclusive rights and control over something. Exclusive rights and control over something. So, for example, I have ownership over my vehicle. I have exclusive rights and control over it. I can decide whether or not I'm going to change the oil. And if I decide not to change the oil and the engine breaks down, then I suffer the consequences of not having good ownership over my vehicle. I have ownership over my bicycle. I can decide whether to keep maintenance on my bicycle or whether or not I want to upgrade the parts and get some really great suspension on my bicycle. But it is mine. I have exclusive rights and control over that bicycle. This church building, I do not own. I do not have exclusive rights or control over this building. That means if I want to change something in this church building, like let's say I want to change the color of the paint, or I want to change the pews into chairs, or I want to wreck it all and build a brand new monster truck arena. I can't do that. That is, it is not under my control. I do not have exclusive rights and control over this church building. As a congregation, we do. So as a congregation, we can vote. We can come together. We can express our ideas. And we can decide, yes, the church building isn't being properly used. We need to demolish it and build a monster truck arena. That's just something we should talk about at the next business meeting. I don't know. If you're against that, you should probably come to the next business meeting. I'm just kidding. We're not really going to do that. But that is a pitch to come to the church building business meeting because we do have, uh, this is a congregational church. So we, it is not something that is controlled by the elders or controlled by the pastor. It is controlled by the congregation in submission to God and his word. So those are different instances of control, Right. Would you say anything controls you? Does anything have ownership over you? Does anything have exclusive rights? Maybe you've given your life to Christ and you say, Christ owns me. He has exclusive rights and control over me. But yet, I have been giving control over to other things. There are other things in my life that have begun to control me. Everyone on earth will be owned by something or someone. Everyone in this building, everyone who has existed throughout the history of humanity, will be owned. For example, a dictator. You might think, a dictator, how can, how can anything own him? He's a dictator. He is the most powerful person in his country. He is the wealthiest person in his, his country. He, he is above the law. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. There's no way anything can ever own a dictator. And yet, uh, we see that Max Fisher, writing for the New York Times, describe uh, what, what is called the dictator's or strongman's dilemma. And that is how to set up a successor without creating a rival. And how to leave a government able to outlast the leader 
without making themselves vulnerable. Essentially, the dictator, the strong man in a government, although he is above the law, although he is wealthy beyond mention, although he, he, it seems like nothing owns him, what he is a slave to, what owns him, what has exclusive rights and control over him, is the power and the system that he has set up. See, the strong man's dilemma is, if he ever gives up that power, there will be a coup and his eventual death. He is now owned by the power that he grabbed for. And I think that's such a great picture of our lives. Because we, especially as Americans, want freedom, right? We cry for freedom. We love Braveheart. And when he yells, freedom, we love the idea of freedom. And we hate the idea that we could ever be owned by something, that something could have rights and control over us. And so we strive for freedom, and yet oftentimes it is that very idea of freedom that begins to own us. In this world, in your life, you will be owned by something. The question is, who will be your master? That's what we're going to study today as we open up to Revelation 7, as we continue our series called Hopeful, as we study through Revelation, we we chose the the title of this series, Hopeful, because Revelation should give us hope. Of all people, Christians should have hope. When we see the world collapsing around us, we can still have hope, because Revelation gives us hope. It gives us how it's going to end. And we know where our hope lies. So last week, We studied chapter 6, and chapter 6 ended with the question, who can stand before his wrath? This year, as we look at who owns us, we will find the answer to this question. So chapter 7 and other chapters in Revelation uh, do not advance the narrative, but are what's called a pause or an interlude. So we've been looking through, this is the second vision In the book, we saw the first vision. In chapter 1, we got the introduction in the first vision, which is seven letters to seven different churches. And then we jumped into the second vision, where he he enters into the throne room of heaven, and he begins to describe the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb. There are two chapters full of God's glory and the glory of Jesus. And then he gets into the opening of the first sets of judgment. So in, Re- in the book of Revelation, there are three sets of judgment. There are the seals, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Chapter 6, we get into the first six of the seven seals. So Jesus begins to break the seals, he begins to open the scroll, and the judgments start to come out onto earth. The beginning of those, the first four seals, are really just a revelation of man's depravity. So the restraint that is holding back man's depravity right now is being lifted in the book of Revelation. And as it gets lifted, we begin to see how absolutely depraved men are. And then we see the saints in the fifth seal begin to cry out for justice. Oh God, when will you bring justice? And then in the sixth seal, we see God beginning to bring the judgment about. So the sixth seal is the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of the judgment. And what we notice in chapter 6 is though there is an absolute clear picture of our depravity, 
man does still not still does not repent. And although there is a clear picture of our depravity and a clear picture of the glory of God and the wrath of God, man still does not repent. Now, before he opens the seventh seal, we get this interlude. And that's where we jump in today with chapter 7 in the interlude. Or pause, I should say. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. When I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd." And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Alright, so as we described already, this is an interlude or a pause. So it's not driving the narrative. So we see through chapter 6, the opening of the seals, that's driving the narrative. It's driving the story forward. And even in chapter 8, we'll see the seventh seal, and that will drive the narrative forward. Here is a pause button, and it gives us, it draws us deeper into the narrative. It gives us a more robust picture of the narrative. So after this, after he had seen the opening of the first six seals, he saw four angels. Now these four angels will uh, have been given power uh, to restrain. Well, actually, I should say they're restraining their power right now, but they have been given power over wind. And this wind is going to be a destructive force. So when they start to really influence their power, the wind will bring in destruction. And we see wind with destruction force all the time. 
if you live in Dhoni Park. You know the destruction of wind, right? You know that force. Sometimes when I'm awake because the wind had woken me up at 3 a.m., I can just hear things. And I'm constantly wondering, what am I going to wake up to in the morning? There will be something destroyed, I guaranteed. But we see it in other places, too. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a huge fire in Colorado. That was, it was just a grass fire. And you think, a grass fire, that should be easily contained. But because of the power of the wind, that fire destroyed over 500 homes. And it's amazing to see the pictures. Because in most of those cases, there is nothing left. Just the frame, the cement frame. Not even the frame, I should say, but the foundation. Just the cement foundation, the cinder block foundation. You can see pictures of, of cars that were just absolutely burned to pieces. And they couldn't contain it because of the wind. Before we moved here, we lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And you think Dhoni Park wind is bad. Dhoni, or Cheyenne's wind socks are chains with metal balls on the bottom. And sometimes they blow into Nebraska. Uh, we have watched semis get blown over in Cheyenne. It's absolutely insane. There was one day, you know, we were walking through the mall in Cheyenne. It was like there was this thing advertising, experience hurricane force winds, 75 miles per hour. That day, gusts were over 80 miles per hour. We walked outside, and my kids were afraid they were going to get blown away. And the fear was real. So yes, winds are powerful and destructive forces. And so we see that these are, this is a force that God will unleash when the timing is right. But for now, these angels are going to hold these back, right? So they're holding back this destructive force. So they're standing at the four corners of the earth. Now some people use this as an idea that the earth is flat, that Christians are just a bunch of idiots that think the, the world is flat. But they don't understand that this is actually a Jewish idiom for, uh, for every part of the earth, really. That's what this means. They don't actually think that there's four corners and that they're holding it back at the four corners. It's a Jewish idiom for every part of the world. So when you read, standing at the four corners, think they're standing at every part of the world holding this wind back. In fact, we see in Isaiah 40.22 and Psalm 19.6 a description of, a, of the world being a sphere. So we know that, that throughout Scripture, they didn't always just think, you know, flat earth. But there are descriptions of the world being a sphere. So, uh, so you can put that out of your mind that, that uh, the Bible supports a flat earth. I think it supports a spherical earth, and there is good evidence for that. But this is a Jewish idiom for every part of the world, or every part of the earth. So they're standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun. The rising sun is a reference to the east, and the east and the rising sun were symbolic for, for the kingdom of God. In fact, when, when God comes with Jesus, or I should say when Jesus comes again and, and ushers in his earthly kingdom, he will be coming from the east side of Jerusalem. So that is why it's a reference to God's kingdom. So he's coming from the rising of the sun, which is really a reference to God's kingdom, with the seal, oh sorry, uh, with the seal of the living God. So the seal here 
It kind of represents the king's signet ring. Uh, so if a king was to make a law in those days and he stamped that law with his ring, then that law would become sealed and no one was able to, or no one should have been able to break the law or reverse the law, not even the king himself. So that's the point of this ring, the seal. This angel is coming with the authority of God. So God had given him this authority that he could seal something, and, and it is the seal of, I think it's important to note, the living God. And we contrast, contrast that with dead idols. If you remember, part of the background on this book is he's writing to a group that are struggling with the imperial cult meaning worshiping the emperor. So they are living in this pagan land where people are worshiping all kinds of created things, including Caesar himself. And what he's getting at here is that this is the ring with authority, with greater authority than any dead god. A god that has no power, no authority. This angel is coming with the authority of God, and that's the point. It's the living God, not an idol, not some dead God. And he called with a loud voice. Now, if you remember the fifth seal, the, the martyrs who were underneath the altar called with a loud voice. And this isn't the, the last time we'll see this, calling with a loud voice, but this is actually recalling or coming back to that fifth seal. So we see that there is a bit of an answer here to, that, to the question they had with the fifth seal of how long, O Lord? So he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So they're going, he's going to take this seal, this signet ring, and he's going to seal the servants. The servant here is really, I think it, we translate it kind of poorly, it's doulos, and it, it should be translated, uh, if you wanted a more accurate translation, it would be like indentured servant, uh, which is someone who had sold themselves into slavery. So some, trans, some of your translations will say, we have sealed the slaves. But the idea here is that they no longer are the ones that have exclusive rights or control over themselves. But what's interesting is that they have sold themselves into this. They essentially recognized that they weren't very good masters of themselves. They weren't really good at calling their own shots. They've messed things up. And their life is going to be much better if they, if they give control over to God. If they recognize that God is the one who created them, God is the creator of the universe, and their lives will be much better if they live in submission to God. So what, what's happening here is that they have recognized that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, essentially. I mean, we could give the gospel right here, right? This is a group of people that recognize that in their rebellion against God, God said, okay, if you want to call the shots, if you want to be in control, go for it. And when he, and when he let us live in rebellion... We became what the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. Meaning, we were no longer 
living controlled by God, with him having exclusive rights and control and ownership over us, but instead we traded that for sin. Sin started to have exclusive rights and control over us. Have you ever struggled with something that you swore you'd never do? And yet, you continue to go back to that thing that you hate. That is sin having exclusive rights and control over you. And it will until you put your faith and trust in Christ. Because once we, put, uh, once we allowed sin to have that control, there was a separation between us and God because He is holy. And the only way that that could be made right is if justice was declared. And the only way justice could be declared is if someone died. So Jesus came in the flesh and died on our behalf so that we would no longer have to live under the control and ownership of sin. Essentially, sin would no longer be our masters. And we could have a reunification with our true master, God. So, when you put your faith and trust in God, He takes you from being a slave to sin, owned by sin, and you become a slave to God. So that is this term here. Isn't it amazing how just one term can have so much theology in it? So we are a slave to God, essentially saying, God, we messed up. We want you to be our owner. You have exclusive rights and control over us. So these slaves have been sealed. Now, throughout the New Testament, we'll see different sealings. So I think of Ephesians 1.13, where we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, once again, upon putting your faith and trust in Christ. He takes you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive together with Christ. He is now our new master, and he has also done what's called Jesus Christ seals us with the Holy Spirit. And this is, once again, a reference to that signet ring that Christ has sealed us. The Holy Spirit is that seal until the day of the purchased redemption, meaning we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until we go be with God in heaven. So, essentially, it's this argument that you can't lose your salvation. Once you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you can't lose your salvation. That's not what this sealing is here. So there are different sealings at different times. This is a sealing that is done... So the Holy Spirit sealing us for salvation is done by Christ, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the seal. This sealing is actually done by an angel. And it is with God's signet ring. So it is a sealing that the, that the angel has done to the slaves that are going through the tribulation. So do not, oh sorry, uh, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So we have to talk about this for just a little bit because there's two different ways to interpret this. There's the literal interpretation and there's the symbolic interpretation. So the symbolic, there, there are a lot of good godly people I know that believe that this is a symbolic interpretation of this number, the 144,000. And what they do, how they get to this is they look at uh, the number six, is the number for completion. There's six days in creation. That's the number of completion. So if you double six, you've got 12. or twelve. So 12,000 is like, not only is it complete, but it's super complete. And then you add up all the different 12, 
thousands, and it's like, it's so complete, it's beyond our imagination. So that's kind of how they start to get to this idea of it's symbolic. It, there's that, and then there's also that it is, since it's a nice, even, round number. So oftentimes, in, especially in prophecy, if you read a nice, even, round number, it tends to lend more to a symbolic number. So those are the arguments for symbolism. Uh, the arguments for a literal interpretation would be that it includes every tribe of Israel. So if you read through here, if it's, if it's symbolic, why include every tribe of Israel? If it's symbolic, uh, not only would you, why include every tribe, but if you notice something, our kids have been memorizing uh, the sons of Jacob. Yeah, thank you, Lori. These are the sons of Jacob. How many other parents have that song like rolling through their head all the time right now? These are the sons of Jacob. So you should know then, Stevie, that, uh, that there's a name missing here, right? Dan. Dan isn't in here. In fact, if you look at this list, Dan was replaced by Manasseh. Manasseh is the son of Joseph. So you might ask, oh, if it's symbolic, why take out Dan? The fact that Dan is missing lends to a literal interpretation. So the couple arguments for a literal interpretation are that it includes every tribe, why go through the whole list of every tribe, and why, uh, why replace Dan. And then they would add on, why couldn't it be a number of completion and literal number as well? Like, it doesn't have to be either or, it can be a both and. So there you have the, like, the two major, or the, the major arguments from the two uh, ways to interpret it. I'm not, well, I lean more towards the literal side, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, it, you can look towards the symbolic side, and you will not get judged here to look at the numbers as symbolic. I lean towards the literal side, and uh, I just don't think there's good question or answers for why does it give us every single tribe, and why was Manasseh replaced? Now, here's why I think Manasseh was replaced. Oh, sorry, Dan was replaced. Yeah, thank you, Larry, for shaking your head. No. Uh, <laughs> Here's why I think Dan was replaced by Manasseh. Dan was the first tribe to fully embrace idolatry. Essentially, they were the first tribe to say, forget you, God, you have no ownership over us. We're going to submit ourselves as slaves to something else. And as they were the first to do that, they were also the first to fully embrace something else other than God as their owners. And for this reason, I believe that they were switched out of this list. Dan for Manasseh. So there you have it. Those are the numbers that we've got. They were sealed. There's a couple other... I, sorry, I didn't go into all of the evidences, but there's a couple other things. One is, these are still living on earth during the tribulation. If we remember our context, John is in the throne room, and now he is looking down on heaven, or sorry, now he's looking down from heaven onto earth, and he's hearing that there is this number that still need to be sealed before the full tribulation comes into the picture. The, 
this is different from what we're about to read. So we get into verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So what we see here, so we got after this, so after he's looking from, he, from the throne room, looking down and listening to the number that still need to be sealed, and remember, after this draws us deeper into the vision. So he, he's being drawn deeper into this vision, and we're being drawn deeper into the vision. I looked and behold. So he goes from looking down onto earth to looking back at the throne room. And what does he see in the throne room? A great multitude that no one could number. So, I, so some people would say that this is just the, I should say the symbolic people would say, this is just looking deeper into the symbolism of the 144,000. I think this is a totally different group of people. And I think that mainly because this, the 144,000 are speaking specifically of Israel. He goes through and he names every tribe. The great multitude that no one could number. I think we emphasize no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So this is emphasizing that it's all people. There's a difference in these two groups. One is a, is a number that is from Israel. The other is a great multitude that is from all people and group. The other difference is these are people in heaven before the great throne room. Meaning that they have already gone, they have already died. <laughs> Whether it was they died, well, we'll see when they died. We'll, we'll get a little bit more into the description of them. So, I looked and behold a great multitude, no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God, or before the Lamb. And we're going to see that a couple more times, before the throne and the Lamb. And that emphasizes the unity between God the Father and God the Son. So the, the Godhead is unified, although they are described in two different persons, uh, the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches. So the white robes uh, symbolize honor and purity. So these people have received honor, and they, they are now pure with palm branches. Palm branches, if you think of uh, Palm Sunday, that's the, the picture most of us get. Uh, Jesus came riding in, and he was greeted with palm branches because he was thought of as the one who would lead them to victory from Rome. That's the symbolism that the people thought of with palm branches on Palm Sunday. And so palm branches symbolize victory. They're holding these palm branches in victory. So we've got the white robes, meaning they've become pure, and they're holding palm branches. You can feel some very victorious vibes coming out in this throne room scene. And they're crying out loud. So once again, we see this out calling or crying out loud with a voice, which brings us back to those martyrs in the fifth seal. So we see that there's this connection, and they're answering a question, or they're giving this answer, I should say. Crying out loud with a voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This word salvation is soteria. It means to be delivered. It could be deliverance from sin, deliverance from death, deliverance from bondage, deliverance from tribulation. 
deliverance from persecution. So there's a salvation, which is deliverance. And this salvation, this deliverance, belongs to God. We look for so many things for deliverance. There are so many things on this earth that we look to for deliverance. Maybe it's a political ideology that you look to for deliverance. Maybe it's a political party that you look to for deliverance. Maybe it's financial freedom that you look to for deliverance. Maybe it's geography. You know, if only I could change where I live, I will be delivered. Maybe it's in declaring something about yourself. Something you've been keeping a secret. And you think, if only I can just come out with this thing, then I'll finally be delivered from this bondage. But here we see that the only way to deliverance is through Christ. Deliverance belongs to God. Whatever is holding you in bondage, the only thing that will truly deliver you is God. Now don't get me wrong, there are things that that can deliver you from a certain type of bondage. You know, when we think about politics here in America, there are certain political ideologies that will give you more freedom. It's true. Uh, Underneath a communist regime, you will experience less freedom. It's true. But oftentimes, what's happening on this earth, when you look for deliverance through something on this earth, is you are delivered from bondage to another type of bondage. So we don't look for answers here on earth. We look for God to deliver us from bondage. So salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and we see and to the Lamb. Once again, that unity between the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and, uh, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And if you remember our throne room scene, we're getting thrown right back into that, right? With the angels and the living creatures and the 24 elders. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. And if you remember, when we, in chapters 4 and 5, they fell down and worshipped. Here we're taking it to the next step. Not only are they falling down, not only are they prostrating themselves before God, but they're actually falling flat on their faces in submission to God. And then they begin to say, and they begin to praise God. Worship, submission to God, and praising God are always linked The two help each other out. And worship doesn't always mean praise. But we know that if we praise God, when we gather together on a Sunday and we sing praises to God, that helps us worship throughout the rest of our life. Worship being total submission to God. Laying ourselves prostrate, saying, God, You are in control. Exercise authority over my life. That's worship. Worship helps us to praise. When we, throughout the week, when we fall flat on our face 
and worship God and say, God, you're the one in control, that helps us come to church and praise and sing. So praise is verbally expressing our delight in God. Worship is submitting ourselves to God. The two are linked. The two go hand in hand. Do you want a better praise life? Worship God more. Do you want a better worship life? Praise God more. The two are linked. And we'll see that throughout Revelation. So they fall down on their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen. Now, we all know, we've talked about it quite a bit, Amen means I agree, right? So what are they agreeing with? They're agreeing with what the great multitude is saying. The great multitude saying that salvation belongs to our God. And they're saying, I agree. I agree. Salvation belongs to our God. And then they add, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now this forever and ever, some of your translations will have it a little bit differently, and they'll say, to our God who is forever and ever. I think that's a more accurate way of stating this because it is a continuation of the praise. And the difference is, saying all of these things and then saying forever and ever means that we're just going to sit around and we're going to sing this praise forever and ever. Versus who is forever and ever means that God, it's part of the continuous of praise, meaning God lasts forever. He is eternal. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes eternity wears me out. Does anyone else struggle with that? Like you start thinking about eternity and you start thinking, Okay, I'm going to, at some point in eternity, I'm going to become proficient at everything. And then I'm going to be bored, right? In fact, I've heard this as an argument against God and against eternity. Is at some point, you know, and sometimes they paint the picture of worshiping God and like, we're just going to get bored. Who can do that for eternity? And I can relate. And I relate because my mind doesn't comprehend eternity, just like my mind doesn't comprehend God. And so although although eternity wears me out, and the idea of being eternal wears me out, it's not uh, not a good argument. My feelings about eternity are not a good argument about whether or not God is eternal and whether or not he'll make us eternal. So I have to submit my feelings to God, and I have to say, God, I don't know about eternity. It wears me out. But I trust you in eternity. And I trust that you are far deeper and richer than I'll ever understand. And at some point in eternity, I'll begin, it will begin to click in my mind that you are greater and I can trust you with it all. So God is eternal. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me. And some of your translations will say, then one of the elders asked me. Have you ever been asked a question where you knew the person asking you asked you that question and you felt like you were just being set up? Yeah, yeah. It's happened to me before. And uh, I confess, I've probably done it to people before. And sometimes that seems a little awkward, right? But what's happening here is this is like a, a Jewish polite way 
to, to presuppose a question, meaning, you, you know, you might not feel comfortable asking this question, so I'm going to go ahead and ask it for you, knowing that you don't know the answer, but I know the answer. That way you don't have to feel so shameful for not knowing the answer. So that's kind of what's going on here, and it's a little bit awkward for our culture, but it would have made total sense for uh, the, uh, John's audience. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these people? So there's two questions that's going to come into play here. Who are these people? Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come? So those are the two questions. Who are, who are they and where are they from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And this is just John confessing his ignorance, which is a good thing that we need to do too. We need to, we need to confess some ignorance. If you're wondering why sometimes I give a couple different opinions about something, it's because the more I study, the more I realize I don't know. So I think it's good for us to, to, in humility, come to Scripture and confess some ignorance. But that's what John is doing here. He's confessing ignorance, saying, Sir, you know I don't have a clue, but you do. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the tribulation. So that's the answer to the second question. Where have they come? They've come from the great tribulation. And so we see, in contrast to the 144 who are being sealed, they haven't come out of the Great Tribulation yet, but these ones have already come out of the Great Tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this second part is who they are, and it's really important for us to understand, because not everyone who lives during the Great Tribulation will come to heaven and worship before the throne. It is only those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Essentially, robe is symbolic for our personhood. White is symbolic for purity, and the blood is what we wash in. So essentially, these people have confessed that they have messed up, that they've rebelled, and they know that that rebellion made them impure and could not be with God. And so what did they do? They came to God confessing it and putting their faith and trust in the acts of Christ, in the atoning act of Christ dying on the cross for our sin. That's what these people have done. And that is what brought them there to worship God. And he continues, Therefore, this therefore being due to the, the, the redemptive acts of God. Because of God's redemptive act, they are before the throne. And serve Him day and night in His temple. So once again, did I mention eternity wears me out? And you read that and you think, and serve Him day and night? And sometimes we start thinking of like a waiter, just serving God nonstop, day and night, for the rest of eternity, Oh boy, that doesn't sound like much fun. But then I start looking around in this congregation. And I start seeing all the different ways people serve. Oftentimes when we think about serving God, we think about like the worst thing ever. Because what God created us to do and the natural talents that he's given us don't feel a lot like service. So you know, we've got people downstairs teaching children's ministry right now. Serving God. And there are people that are greatly wired for that. We've got other people that are just amazing greeters, and they like to stand outside and greet one another. We've got some people that are just great talkers, and they invite you in, and, and they just make you feel so good right away. 
We've got other people that love to serve by doing coffee and bringing treats. We've got other people that love to serve by studying God's Word and teaching it. Ken and Julie were teaching this Sunday during Sunday school. They were serving God. We've got other people that lead and worship serving God. And so my point here is when we think of serving, oftentimes we think of the worst things like maybe cleaning the toilet after someone has vomited. And we think, boy, that's what we're going to be doing for eternity. But that's not it at all. When he says serving God, God has equipped you in a special way. And essentially it is, you're going to be living for the purpose that God made you for eternity. Whatever that purpose is, and there's going to be several different purposes. Not all of us are the same, but God created us differently, and you're going to be serving in that capacity that he created you to serve in. You will be living your life's purpose. It's going to be amazing. Day and night. Meaning that this, there will be continual activity. Sometimes when we think of eternity, you know, you get this picture of like floating on a cloud. And it sounds really boring to me. But this day and night shows that it's going to be continual activity. You're going to be serving Him in the capacity that He created you to serve day and night. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. This term, shelter, is actually tabernacle. You could say, He will tabernacle with them with his presence meaning that he is going to be there this this tabernacle is a reference to the shekinah glory of god which is a reference all the way back in the exodus when they were fleeing from egypt and they were wandering in the desert in the wilderness and god gave them shade during the day with a cloud And by night, it was the glow of a burning flame. And essentially, they were safe and secure, and God was with them. That's what this is a reference to. So God will be with us day and night, giving us safety and security and guiding us. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The term all-encompassing hunger and thirst represents all of our needs. And essentially what he's saying is all of our needs will be met. God will meet all of our needs. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And so this is the removal of all suffering. So all of our needs will be met. All of the suffering will be removed. And he continues, for the lamb, the reason why all of our needs will be met and the reason why all of suffering will be removed is the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will be very personal with us. He will be personally caring for a great multitude. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then I don't know what will. And He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see that these are the ones who declared God is their owner. I'm no longer going to, ex- going to have exclusive rights over myself, but I am giving exclusive rights and control, essentially ownership to God. He is my master, and I submit to Him. And because of that, He gives me purpose. He meets my needs. He takes away my pain. And he personally cares for me. So chapter 6 ends 
with who can stand the wrath of God? And here is the answer. The one who belongs to Jesus. Chapter 7 answers the question in chapter 6. Who can stand? The one who says, God is my master and I trust him. So how about you? Can you stand? Who's your master? Who have you given exclusive rights and control to? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can live in hope because in the end, even if there's tribulation here, even if there's troubles here, we know that in the end, you will have purpose for us. You will meet our needs. You will wipe away every tear. There will be no more suffering in the end. And you will be our personal shepherd, intimately taking care of us. In your name we pray. Amen.